who is going to be a missionary to uh, New York City, will be with us, Avita Singh. And I hope you'll come and share and listen to the burden she has for that city and let her tell you how the Lord had brought her from Guyana to the United States and to a church in New York and how she has a burden for that city to reach people with the gospel. I hope you'll come and be with us for the evening service. For the moment, Romans chapter 8, and let me call your attention to verses 3 through 11 as we read into context. Romans chapter 8, verse number 3, Paul says, For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. A great passage of scripture and one that I think speaks to a lot of aspects of our own personal lives. Message titled on what is your mind set or as we might use the word fixed. What is your mind fixed upon? Because that's really what the passage is about. Let me ask you a question that really has to do with science. Have you ever heard of these men? Sir Isaac Newton, Johannes Kepler, Carl Linnaeus, Michael Faraday, Samuel Morse, Louis Pasteur, Joseph Lister. I'm sure you've heard of some of them, if not all of them. What's interesting about these, these are by those accounts of biology books and scientific books say it and state that these are listed among the world's greatest scientists of all times. What's interesting about these men, for instance, in Newton's case, he discovered the law of gravity, the law of motion and the reflecting telescope. Kepler, he was the one who discovered the planetary motion, what we would call the pattern of the stars, the pattern of, of all the galaxies, that kind of thing. A guy by the name of Linnaeus, he worked out the classification system for plants and animals. No, he's not the guy that you hated when you were in biology and had to do those bug collections and couldn't figure out the specifications. That's not the guy. That's another guy. Faraday, he worked on electric generators and transformers. Every time you flip a switch, you could give a thanks for Faraday and his work on transformers and reducing electricity and increasing it. Morse, he worked out the telegraph and gave us the Morse code. 
Pasteur. He's the guy who discovered pasteurization, that of milk and everything else that makes substances that might not otherwise be as healthy for us. He also discovered the work of vaccination and immunization. Joseph Lister, he's the guy who discovered that you could put somebody to sleep, surgically operate upon them, and wake up and they'd never remember a thing. He's the fellow with the antiseptic surgery. He's also the guy who did the first wiring together of bones that had been broken so that they might heal. And he's also the fellow who came to, so when you have a surgery, you don't have to go back to the doctor. He's the guy that didn't, came up with dissolving surgical stitches. You don't have to go back to the doctor to have them removed. What's fascinating about these men is not so much to me that they did all these wonderful things, and yet I'm impressed, and yet I'm grateful. But I want you to hear about these people because uh, I want you to know three things about them. One, they believed the Bible. All of them did. Every single one of them gave testimony, and we could prove that very clearly from their own writings. They believed the Bible. The second thing I would want you to know about them is that they testified to the fact they had a firm belief in God as the creator of the universe. They believed God created this universe and all that in it is. They believed that, believed it strongly. And thirdly, every indication is given in their writings that they each believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins. From our standpoint, we would describe these men as Christians who were scientists and men with convictions and men who had absolute fortitude to step out and write it in scientific documented writing so that it's there for the world to see. There is widespread false information given mostly by the godless media of our country that says that all scientists basically were atheists and had no confidence in biblical records. That is an absolute lie. And Peter Jennings, Tom Brokaw, and Dan Rather know it. The fact of the matter is the Christian faith has to do with the mind. And anyone who really thinks outside of the evolutionary box that we were all put into by our godless school system and by the godless media will often come to a whole different conclusion regarding God and creation and salvation. Sadly, however, we live in a day when people don't like to think. In fact, most people, I guess, in one sense of the word out there in the public eye, don't think. I can prove that. Last Sunday evening, I arrived home, turned on the television to watch the evening news after all the services and the fellowship of the day was finished. I heard an unbelievable account of what happened on the interstate. I heard of a man and his wife and his daughter was driving Interstate 65. I heard that the man ran out of gas, the story account gave, and said the man got out and began to push the car on the interstate. My first reaction was, as I said to myself, my wife, what was he thinking? You're on Interstate 65, you ran out of gas, and you're pushing your car on the interstate. What are you thinking? My answer to myself was, he probably wasn't thinking, he was reacting. And I say to you, it was a deadly mistake because a car came behind him, hit him and his vehicle, killed him, injured his wife and daughter. I say all that to tell you that reason people do not come to salvation in Jesus Christ is that they are sinners and they are living and acting as sinners do. And it is they don't think about God, they don't think about death, and they don't think about eternity because they're dead in their sin. They are not alive to the things of God. Their minds don't work about and think about, consider what God is and who He is and what He's done. And it is not that they have checked God out somehow and found Him be insufficient. 
And that is that the evidence they saw was not able to convince them. That's not it at all. The evidence is overwhelming. They are simply not thinking, and they're not thinking because they're dead in trespasses and sins. I remind you the Christian faith is a thinking person's faith. That is, that's why the Bible begins right off the bat in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. The ideal of that is that any right-thinking person can see all the evidence for the Bible being the absolute true and reliable word and also see that God indeed does exist and is involved in this world in which you and I live and that Jesus Christ was God in the flesh, died as the Savior of the world and indeed rose again and is at this very moment alive and present at the right hand of the Father. Anybody who is a thinking person and those who are of faith can see that and believe it wholeheartedly. When you come to true Bible-believing churches, we don't ask you to check your brain at the front door where you put your coat up. In fact, we tell you to come to the service with a Bible in hand and your mind ready to think. Because the Bible is a book that relates to thinking people. Even after salvation, after you have come to know that Christ died for you on the cross, that he was buried and he rose again for your salvation, the Bible itself encourages us to understand. You need to read it. You need to understand it. And the more you read, understand, and hide God's Word in your heart, the more conformed to His likeness you will become. Paul wrote it, and we'll see it later in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may be able to prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Paul wrote in the book of Philippians, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Philippians chapter 4 says, in verse number 8, Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, and whatsoever things are honest, and whatsoever things are just, and whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, and whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think. Think on these things. See, one of the problems we have is that the Christian life has so often come to the idea that it's purely emotion. Um, Christian life is emotion. Nobody doubts that. Our hearts get broken over many, many things, and we shed tears just like the next person would. But it's more than emotion. The Christian faith is built upon truth, and when people embrace that truth, it opens up a whole new spectrum of life, understanding, and expectation. You see, worship in a lot of churches is not based on truth. It's based upon something of what we have now come to call and relate to as entertainment. It's not built on truth. People sing songs about everything in the world except what worship was intended to be about in the first place, and that is about exalting the Lord. Everything about worship ought to be somehow, some way, exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father, or His Spirit. When it does anything else, it is of the flesh. It is somehow satisfying the flesh. It is somehow entertaining the flesh. It is somehow drawing upon the, what the flesh desires to see and hear. And our society has really fallen into that. I would caution you about preachers on the television that never open the scriptures, and yet will you come to the services here and tell me how good a sermon they preached? I was listening a few days ago. Someone cautioned me about a preacher. I listened to him. I listened to him very well. His name was Joel Osteen. Joel's father was a preacher, a Baptist preacher at one point, by the way. And it always interests me that all three of the most famous charismatic preachers were once Baptists. Rod Parsley, John Hagee, and here in this case, uh, Osteen. What is interesting about 
Holstein, in his case, is he never alluded to the Scriptures. Oh, I know they start the service out, as I heard him say. He gets the whole congregation into it, and they repeat the creed. I believe in the Bible, the Word of God, etc., etc. I understand that. That's not what I listen for. It'd be like me getting up on Sunday morning and making one statement, I believe the Bible, and then going off and teaching you all kinds of other things. Now, is what he says based on biblical philosophy? I don't doubt that. I don't doubt that. That's not the point. You see, if you do not tell people where you got the information, it makes it look as if I got it. And God does not share His glory lightly. He's a jealous God. If you get it from God's Word, you ought to say, Hey, this is found in Philippians chapter number 2, verse number 6. That's where I got it. I didn't come up with this in my sleep while I was dreaming and had a vision. This is what God says in His Word, and you can read it for yourself. Too often our churches come to a place where we just want to hear some guy filter God's Word through their experiences. You'll forgive me, that's absolutely wrong. You don't need to hear from God filtered through Rick Henry's experiences. You need to hear from God directly from His revelation that He gave of Himself. You know why? Because He knows you to be a thinking people. Now, if you're a knot on a log or a wart on a frog, I understand. You don't have to think. But if you're a person who has a heart and a brain that God gave you, He wants you to think. And when you think upon these things, your life will be changed and dramatically transformed. And so the point about this passage of Scripture, of that which we come to, is to understand first and foremost that God's people are to be thinking people. The whole of the Christian life is built on the influence of the Scriptures on the mind and the heart. Let me ask you to turn to a passage before we get in too deep to Romans 8. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse number 15, note carefully what Paul says, or Peter says, about Paul. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse number 15, he writes an account, or consider, reckon, that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. And that is the patience of the Lord, and obviously the text has to do with the coming of the Lord. So he says, account, or consider, or reckon, that the long-suffering, the patience of our Lord, is salvation. Some people are going to be saved because the Lord has not returned. He said, even as our beloved brother Paul, also according to the wisdom given unto him, hath written unto you. Get the picture. God gave Paul wisdom, and Paul then passed it on to us. And the point is, obviously, he's relating, relating to the epistles that Paul wrote. He had wisdom that came from God under the inspiration of God. He wrote it down, and we get to encourage ourselves in that. Look at verse 16. He says in verse 16, As also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also other scriptures, unto their own destruction. What he's saying in a sense is false teachers, cults, often teach, for instance, that law-keeping is a, is a way or a means of salvation. If I just keep the Ten Commandments, if I simply obey the Mosaic Law, I get to go to heaven. And what Peter is saying about Paul and his writings is, I admit some of the things he wrote are a little hard to understand. But I do understand that these people rest, and the word in the, in the Greek carries with it the idea of, uh, of twisting or torturing the Scriptures twisting them or torturing the scriptures to make them say something they want to say. And then notice in verse 16, he says, it's unto their own destruction. What's he mean? It simply means if you were to take that truth and say you had to keep the law, everybody in this room and everybody in this world will be in a devil's hell by the time you die. Now, nobody going to keep that law. 
And that's his point. If you preach that you have to keep the law to get to heaven, you rest the scriptures from what they say to what you want them to say, and you do it at your own destruction. That's what he says. It's the same thing about baptism. If you believe baptism gets you to heaven and you somehow have been warped in that teaching by some person who taught you that, he's saying that's going to be to your destruction and that's awful because that's not what the Bible teaches. And that's the way it is with every teaching that comes from those who are unlearned and unstable. And it's important to understand, who who, who does that teaching? The unlearned. You see, it's the whole thing about the mind and using it the way God intended it to be used. And he said, those who are unlearned and unstable, that's what they get into. Verse 17. Ye therefore, beloved, seeing ye know these things before, beware, lest ye also, being led away with the error of the wicked, fall from your own steadfastness. Believers are to continually be on guard against false teaching. And to do that, you have to have the wisdom of God that's revealed in His Word. The same as verse 16 or verse 15 talked about. And then verse 18. But grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be glory both now and forever. Amen. It's an interesting thing. He says there are two things, two areas in which you should grow. And by the way, growing in this context in Second Peter is the ideal of something and an issue that has to do with your mind and your thinking. So we want you to grow in two areas, both of which have to do with thinking or your mind. The first one is to grow in grace. To grow in grace in this context is to increase in the likeness of the character of Christ. That's what he's saying. Grow in grace. But he also says you ought to grow in the knowledge of the Lord. And that is to increase yourself and acquaint yourself with the Lord through his word. I'm reminded of that uh, at uh, Ethiopian. When Philip went up to him, he was in a chariot. And he arrives there and he sees that he's reading in the book of Isaiah. And he asked him, he said, understandest thou what thou readest? He said, how can I unless somebody shows me? I'm reminded of that. You see, if you don't read the word with an intent to understand, you're reading the scriptures are not going to gain you any merit with God. You see, the scriptures were not given as a magical portion. So if you read them, you get points in heaven. They were read with the idea that you understand them so you could obey them. And my point is that we somehow have made the Bible a magical, sacred kind of ritual. And if you read it, you get points. And if you read it, when you get to heaven, he'll pat you on the back and say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. I hate to burst your bubble, but that's not the way it works. The ideal is, is a thinking process. You read it, you understand it. As James says, be a doer of the word, not just a hearer. Not just somebody who says, oh, I heard that, I read that, I know what you're talking about. But someone who says, hey, I know what you're saying, and I will go do that. I understand what the Bible is telling me to go do. By the way, I'm not against, I just am cautious. When all this few years ago came out with these bracelets, what would Jesus do? There are two things that prerequisite before you could ever have anything to do with that. One, you'd have to know Jesus personally. He'd have to be your Savior. You'd have to know Jesus Christ as Savior. Uh, because otherwise, you couldn't do what He was doing if you tried. And I repeat what I repeated last week or two. It is not Jesus as a model that we're to follow. That is, salvation is not yours because you model Jesus Christ because you can't model Him. Remind you, He fulfilled the law perfectly and nobody ever has or ever will do that. So don't look at him as a model and say, oh, Jesus Christ is a model. You pattern your life after him and you'll get to heaven. No, you won't. What you do is you bow your knee before him. Confess him as Lord and Savior. 
and believe in your heart that he died for your sins, then you get to heaven. But the first thing before you can do what Jesus did at all is to know him as personal Savior. The second thing is you'll have to read his word. So every time you see somebody with a band on their arm that says, what would Jesus do? You ought to ask them, what did you get out of the word today? What did you gain from your private devotion life today? Because if you thought somehow putting a bracelet on your arm or a a necklace around your neck with these words on it, somehow when you faced a situation that miraculously, magically, you were going to get to know exactly what to do, you'll forgive me, but you haven't had your Wheaties today. That's not going to happen that way. There is only one way you'll get to know what Jesus would do. And that is by reading His Word as His child and let His Spirit reflect that truth on your heart. That's the only way it comes. It does not come by some accident and it does not come by miraculous means. It comes by studying the Word. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly, rightly dividing the Word of Truth. And when we do that, then we understand and say, Hey, I understand what that's saying. I know, I know what God means by that now. And now I can obey that. I'm saying to you, my friend, it has been that we have somehow played around the idea that we'll come somehow get the truth from God without doing what Scripture says we must. And that is completely, totally, absolutely studying the Scriptures to get it. That's why we offer Sunday school. I, you'll forgive me. I just think it's a shame. We have a Sunday school class for about everybody age-wise, and yet we have so much room that we could take on hundreds or more people and folks don't come. Even of our own membership. Even of our own membership. I think it's a shame. We have an opportunity to have folks teach us the Scriptures. They study all week long. Our Sunday school teachers work and prepare and make ready. And then we come to class and we sit at their feet. They've done all the work. We get to sit there and absorb and soak up what they've taught us. And yet there are all so many empty pews. That's so discouraging to folks who have an obligation to teach the Word. We encourage you to help them to be faithful in Sunday school. Then there's a worship service, coming into the worship service. It's not a thing of coming and watching Pastor Henry make a fool of himself, as he often does. That's not what it's about. It's about hearing God speak and looking at His Word and seeing it for yourself and coming to realize that when God speaks... He's no respect of persons. He wants me to hear it, understand it, and then go out and propagate it. Leave it out first, and then tell other people what I've learned. I appreciate many of you telling me that as we've gone through the book of Romans, I deeply appreciate you telling me you talked to someone and told them something you saw in the passage of Scripture, and you shared it with them, and they told you they'd never seen that before, and that was a real help to them. I think that's what it's all about. I think it's, it's one beggar telling another beggar where to get bread and keep sharing it. Keep sharing it. But I say to you, we've got so many of our own members who are not in the Sunday morning worship service. And then we'll assemble again this evening. And I admit, much of what will happen in the evening service, um, Savita, who will speak and share her burden, and then I'll preach after that's over if there's any time left. The fact of the matter is, I understand the Sunday evening service are a little different because we have missionary guests. But it's an opportunity for you to listen to the burdens of other people and what God has done in their lives and directed their steps in accordance to His Word. Not emotional drain and not emotional draw and not some kind of of, of sporadic kind of influences that were cast upon them from elsewhere, but from the Spirit of the Lord working in their hearts, using His Word to direct their path and giving them a calling that will bring honor to Christ. That's what Sunday evening is about. I think it's just a shame we have so many pews that sit empty on Sunday evening. 
Why is all this true? Well, one of it is, I think, that it goes back to our passage in Romans chapter 8, and I ask you to go back there now, because I think it comes down to a factor of, of the business of the mind and thinking and wanting to learn and understand more about what God has for me. You see, the Scriptures speak of it often in the Psalms, and I think there is a sense in which that the Old Testament folks had a, a grip on this that we don't. And I don't really know why, but I think they had. They had a thirsting to know God better. You know, they had a sense. You read through the Psalms of David's writings, and David had a, a, a thirsting to know God better than he knew Him. You know, I, I don't know if we have that. I, I almost think that we're pretty satisfied, you know. I can quote 66 books. I know where they're at, and I can find verses within them. I know the general framework of salvation by grace through faith and grace alone and faith alone in Christ alone. We've got that down pretty good. And a few other doctrines we're pretty good on. we got that down pretty good. And it's almost as if that's enough. That's enough. But if that's enough for you, then I tell you something. You immediately violate one verse of Scripture that we just read. But grow in grace and in knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. You see, if you ever get satisfied in the Christian life, you violate that responsibility of growing in grace. And you can ask, why should I want to grow in grace? Don't ask me. Ask the Father who gave the verse. Let Him tell you why He wants you to do it. If you don't understand. I understand because as I told the men in prayer yesterday, from way back here to way down here, my life has changed drastically. And I tell you what, it's so changed and so different and so unique from where it was back over here that I don't understand how I survived that. I wonder 10 years from now when I look back on this, how in the world I survived that? And I submit to you that unless you grow in grace, you may not survive intact. That's what growing in grace will do. It'll keep you spiritually caught up to the growing demands on your life that this world will place on it. I remind you, this world is no friend of grace. And this world will tax you to the point to where there'll be times where you'll be ready to throw in the hat and throw in the towel and just lay it all aside and say, I've had enough. I, I don't want any more of this. And grace is that thing that keeps you balanced on what you're facing and what God is supplying. Coming to the likeness of the character of Christ to sustain you in the moments when you need them most. And today you can't see tomorrow. I don't know what you'll need tomorrow, but there'll be a tomorrow out there somewhere you'll need God more than you've ever needed Him before in your life. And growing in grace will sustain you for that moment. I've heard people, and I've talked to folks who have faced circumstances in their life where they said, I don't think I can face that. And my word's always the same. You probably can't until it's time. I believe in dying grace. I don't believe you get dying grace 15 years before you die. I believe you get dying grace for when you're dying. But I think there's living grace. And I think that living grace is given to and shared with and provided for those people who want to live for Christ and do what they can to honor and glorify Him here and now. I call your attention then to Romans chapter 8, verse number 5. We're talking about the mind. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the of the Spirit. Verse number 5 is, uh, is telling us that uh, sort of a clarification, if you want to call it that, of verse number 4. What happened in verse number 4 was that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, 
And Paul classified the people he was talking about who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. What he says in this context is the people who will have the righteousness of the law fulfilled in their lives are a group of people who walk after the Spirit. And the four, a very obvious concern about that is, is, is what's he explaining here? What's the point? first thing he's explaining is a distinction between these two groups of people. And you need to understand that because I personally believe that we've uh, have been misfired on this verse for a long time. The first thing to understand in verse number 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, and they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit, is a distinction of the two groups of people on the face of the earth, saved and lost. And that's proven by the context. It's proven by the context because he later on will tell us those who have the Holy Spirit, they walk in the Spirit. They are after the Spirit. Those that don't have the Spirit of God, they are none of His. And they are the folks who walk after the flesh. So in this room here this morning, there are two groups of people. There's a group of people who mind the flesh. I mean, your life is dominated by what the flesh wants to do. Then there's a group of people here who's dominated by what the Spirit wants to do. Those are saved people. If the flesh dominates what you do, you're not saved. You're not going to heaven. If you die before you leave, you will end up in a devil's hell. But if your life is dominated by the Holy Spirit and your dependence upon Him, then the Bible said you're saved by the grace of God. What's important about that to understand is that there are saved people who want to think that you can be and play a game over here. Now, grant you, and you need to understand this, Romans chapter 7 talks about the great battle that takes place between the flesh and the Spirit. Paul the Apostle said, O wretched man that I am. And he was talking about that feeling he had when he had, as it were, allowed the flesh to dominate again. So we're not talking about someone who never sins. We're not talking about our Nazarene brethren's total perfection or sinless perfection. Not talking about that. We're talking about the bent of your life. The pattern of your life. When you get up tomorrow morning, what's the bend of your life? What is the direction of your life? What's the pattern of your life? And the Bible is talking about in this context, and Paul is writing about it here, those people that are after the flesh and do mind the flesh and are dominated by the flesh, Paul is saying those people are not saved and the righteousness of the law cannot, will not be fulfilled in those people. There's one simple reason. Because the Holy Spirit does not dwell there. And the righteousness of the law can only be fulfilled in people whose hearts are after the Spirit where the Holy Spirit of God dwells. Later on, in fact, next Sunday, when we get to verse number 6, he'll tell you to people like that, carnally-minded people, fleshly-minded people, it is not going to be death. It is death. They're already dead. And they're dead to the things of God. And he'll talk about it in the next three verses. My point here in this context for you and me is to understand there's a division here. Saved people, lost people. And those that are lost do mind the things of the flesh. Those who are saved, the mind of the Spirit. And it's important to note in verse number 5, the phrase, do mind. The Greek word for mind there is a word that would mean to us to exercise one's thoughts toward or to interest oneself in or to give attention to. Those are the phrases that you'll find in a, in a dictionary that will relate what those words mean or what the word mind in the Greek means. It's simply to say the flesh stands for human nature and which is the, the dominant element in a lost person's life. 
When I was reading this week, uh, chasing verses as I call it, I ran across Matthew 16 in verse number 22. Here's what it said. It says, Then Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But he turned and said unto Peter, Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. In your verse, verse 23, chapter number 16, you ought to underline the word savorest because it's the basic same Greek word that's used here in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 5 for the word mind. Peter, you mind the things of the world. You don't mind the things of Christ. Was he saying it's in a permanent condition? I don't think so. I think he was saying, at this moment, for this second, your spirit of rebellion against my death is causing you to act like a lost person. And you're thinking totally in terms of what lost people would do to protect their leader. And I'm saying to you, get thee behind me, Satan. We know Peter was not satanic. He was not demonic. Well, why did our Lord say this? Because at that moment, he was acting like someone who was. And our Lord said to him, you're minding the things of the world, the things of the flesh. You're acting like a lost person. You're acting satanic. And that word savers is the same Greek word. Then there's also a verse of Scripture in Colossians chapter 3, verse 2. It says, when Paul wrote this to the church at Colossae, he said, Set your affection on things above and not on things on this earth. The Greek word there is the same as the word set. Set. Lock in your affections on things above do not lock in your affections on things of this earth. Set, savorest, mind, focus your attention on. That's what all those mean. So the question this morning, and this is an important question for us, is on what is your mind set? What's your mind set on most of the time? What is the bent of your mind? What's, what's it on most of the time? That, my friend, will tell you more about your spiritual life than all the testimonies you'll ever share. And that's what Paul is saying. They that mind the flesh are lost. They whose minds sit predominantly by pattern, bent of life, on the Spirit, are people who are saved. So the question is, on what is your mind set most often? You have to understand, we all started at the same block Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 3 says, Paul writes, Among whom also we all had our conversation or our manner of life in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Paul says every one of us is in the same boat originally. Lost people live for the flesh in the flesh, they mind and desire to satisfy and gratify the flesh. That's what Paul is saying. And by the way, this doesn't mean that lost people never do anything good, and it doesn't mean saved people never do anything wrong. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, what is the bent of your life? That's what makes the difference here. By the way, in a sense, Paul has been telling us all along from passage over in chapter 5 right along that until and unless a man, a woman, a boy, a girl is justified, they cannot possibly do that which is holy. That's what he's been saying. Unless you've been justified, you cannot do that which is holy. That's like keeping the law as you were. Now Paul is saying and showing us if a man is not holy... If he is not holy, if he does not mind the things of the Spirit, if the bent of his life is not toward that, then he's saying, then that man's not justified. 
You see what he's saying? He's saying that sanctification is evidence of justification. If a man is not sanctified by pattern of life, if that the bend of his life is not sanctification, then there is no justification. I say to you, we don't somehow get away with that. We don't care to talk about that aspect of it, but that's exactly what he's reversed himself on now. Early on saying, you cannot be justified. You are not justified unless you have trusted Christ, believed on Christ as Savior. Only those people who have can be holy and live right and do right. But now he turns around and says, oh, by the way, if you um, aren't sanctified, you betray the fact you've not been justified. Because they go hand in hand. And again, I repeat, I'm not talking about occasional sin, as Paul would mention in chapter 7. I'm talking about what is the bent of your life. What is the pattern of your life? What is the thing that your mind is thinking on most often? By the way, it's not just thinking, as it were, on terms of drugs and booze and pornography or anything else that you might come up with. Or as we talked about or showed the video Wednesday night here concerning uh, the uh, dark side of the Internet. What it can be is something else. Let me call your attention to a passage. This is in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 4. And so when you're talking about and thinking about mind on the flesh, don't just think in terms of those sins that we so often mention. In Philippians chapter 3, listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Philippi. He said, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he had whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, an Hebrew of Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee, concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. What this is saying is, and what this pictures here in Philippians chapter 3, it pictures a moral man. Paul the apostle, as, a, as he was in description here before he came to faith in Christ, he was a moral man. He tried to obey the law. In fact, everything about his life was reflected on his flesh trying to comply with holy standards. And that's what he was trying to do. He's trying to let everybody know that he could be accepted and approved of God on the basis of the flesh. And I say to you, I don't think there is anything so like the thinking of a mindset of the unbeliever as this delusion and this deception of heart and mind is to think that you can do anything in the flesh that will please God. And I'm talking now in terms of getting salvation. There's just nothing you can do. That's why keeping the Ten Commandments won't get salvation. That's why going to church every Sunday won't get salvation. That's why being baptized won't get salvation. It's not wrapped up in that. It's wrapped up in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His sacrificial death on the cross of Calvary for all mankind. And I say to you, like Paul in this context, he still somehow believed and trusted that his flesh was going to get God's acceptance and his approval. But only as he was on the Damascus Road and knocked down by that great light of the presence and the glory of God that he come to the end of himself and say, I realize now it's not what I can do, it's what you have done. And I say to you, that's exactly the truth of this passage of Scripture. Notice something else. Lost people have this tendency, as 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 4 say, it says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, and neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. You see, it scares me when Bible-believing people who profess to know Christ as Savior tell me that they look at the Scriptures and they read the Scriptures, but they don't understand them. 
They don't understand it. Now, I grant you, as Peter said in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, some things Paul wrote are sometimes hard to be understood. And there are things all through the Bible that are occasionally hard to be understood. But I believe the Bible-believing Christian who is indwelt by the Spirit of the Lord has access to the door of understanding of the Scriptures. And I believe that's everybody in this room who professes faith in Christ. And so to say, I don't understand the Scriptures in a blanket, generic statement is a little frightening to me. I can understand occasionally not understanding. I don't understand, though, when there's a perpetual saying, I don't understand. And then pastor gets up and preaches, I don't understand what he's talking about. Or a Sunday school teacher gets up and says, I don't know what the guy's talking about. There's just really no excuse for that. There ought to be an understanding because the Scriptures are dealing with the mind and the thinking processes that God has revealed Himself through of revealing His Word by His Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit indwells a person, that in itself gives basis for understanding what the mind of the Spirit was. I was reading this week and I came to understand it, a new appreciation after I was reading about all these scientists. I ran across Albert Einstein. He's listed as one of the greatest minds in science that have ever been. I was uh, I read first of all about him in his early life. I cut a clipping out on that, and, and here's what the clipping said. He said he was a boy so slow to learn, uh, learn to talk, that his parents thought him abnormal, and his teachers called him a misfit. His classmates avoided him and seldom invited him to play with them. He failed his first college entrance exam at a college in Zurich, Switzerland, and a year later he tried again. In time, he became, of course, what we know as Albert Einstein. What's interesting to me, too, is that there's some things that this uh, guy wrote and, and uh, recorded that uh, give me a headache. For instance, one of them is, he says, None of Einstein's ideas have so fascinated the public and provoked such controversy among physicists as the so-called clocks, clock paradox. The paradox is based on the assumption that time passes more slowly for an object in motion than one that is at rest. Thus, if Einstein is correct, an astronaut traveling at extremely high speed, say to a distant star and back, would age less during his trip than a twin brother who had remained on Earth. Depending on the length of his mission, the astronaut could, upon his return, actually be years younger than the twin who stayed on the Earth. I don't know about you, but my head hurts when I think about that. What's this guy talking about? Then he wrote this. Einstein said, The reason he could construct the theory of relativity was because there was one thing in the world that is absolutely unchangeable. That one thing, he said, was the speed of light. It is the only constant in the universe. Light travels at the rate of 186,000 miles per second. That's seven times around the world at the tick of a clock. That's fast. I disagree with what he said. Oh, Pastor Henry disagrees with Einstein. Yes, I do. There is another constant. There's a God of this universe who is in this universe. He operates within this universe. He is here present this morning. And He is always the same. He never changes day in and day out. And the fact of the matter is that Einstein made it no secret. In fact, one of his uh, one of the papers written about him, and you can find these on almost any of the sites that reflect him. Judy got this one from me the other day. This one has to do with his belief about God. People ask, do you believe, did Einstein believe in a God? He quote, quote, Einstein says, it was, of course, a lie that you read about my religious convictions, a lie which is being systematically repeated. I do not believe in a personal God. I have never denied this, but have expressed it clearly. 
And he went on to explain that he didn't believe in a personal God because simply he didn't believe a personal God would do to this universe what God did by letting suffering and sadness and heartache be prevalent in it as it is. This writer who wrote this piece here and explained Einstein makes a good point. He said, what Einstein didn't understand is that God didn't make this universe as good and wonderful and as perfect as he did by virtue of the fact of Einstein or anybody else for that matter coming here and then and having or being forced to make choices between good and evil. He said, if everything in this universe had been perfect, then they would not have understood what a good and a bad choice is. And he said, God didn't make this universe for people to live on forever. He made heaven for that. And in order for you to understand right choices, and of course believing on Christ is one of the major choices of that, God, as it were, assembled here and created something here that would give man the laboratory in which to make that judgment. And really I say at funerals, and I say it often, this life is only long enough and this place is only designed for decisions regarding eternity. And that's what it is. You're here long enough to make a decision, to hear enough truth, to understand and relate to what God is up to and what He wants from you. It is not a place you stay forever. This is not where we'll be forever. There is a place called heaven for those who've trusted Christ as Savior. And I say to you this morning, whether Einstein, and by the way, Einstein certainly believed and did believe in a, in a God that created the universe. He, he was a creationist. But he once said, I believe in Spinoza's God. And Spinoza's God, his idea was he's a God out there and he got this thing going and then he stepped back from it and said, you know, just have at it. And I can tell you this, back in 1955 when Einstein died, when he met God, I'm confident that God did not look at Einstein and say, I want to tell you how much I appreciate you working to create the atomic bomb and because you did that, I'm going to let you into heaven free of charge. I can assure you, no matter how wonderful and great and amazing that feat was, and indeed helped us defeat Japan in the war, that did not gain Einstein any credit with God. And I can say this to you in the context of that, people who understand or fail to understand actually the thing about relativity. I don't know about you, but a few months ago a discussion came up in a, a group of men, and, and the word was one of the men not saved, and he said one problem about you Christians is you're, you're not relevant. You don't understand Einstein's theory say what let me tell you and let me remind you of this if somebody throws that up at you E equals MC squared is the formula for his relativity theory there's nothing in that theory that has anything to do with morals or ethics and by the way you can find that on Einstein's in his books he says this has nothing to do with ethics and morality this has everything to do with energy mass and the light of uh, speed of light squared that's what this thing stands for this has nothing to do with with relativity in the sense that Christians aren't relevant we're not relative to the society and that's what this man was saying he said don't you understand Einstein's theory you Christians are not relative this guy doesn't understand his science and he doesn't understand the morality of the scriptures. But one thing it tells me and urges and exhorts me to do and to say to you is there are some absolutes. And one absolute is this. There is a God in heaven who revealed himself in his written word. And this word is that which is going to judge mankind when he leaves this place and he will leave this place. This is not a forever place. This is the place we stay and stand for only the few years that God gives us. And in that time frame, God gives you enough light 
that he's going to expect you to respond to him in childlike faith. As you do, and you come to read this book with the Holy Spirit indwelling you, you can understand it. And you can, as it were, order your life according to what the dictates herein are. As you do that, you'll sense the presence and the blessing of the Lord upon it. As you run counter to it, you'll find that life has some hard spots of which you're going to have to deal with. Most of us in this room who suffer the difficulties and the challenges of life, a great number of them of our own fault because we make choices that were prohibited by the Scriptures. And as we made those choices, we reap the consequences. God wants you to make good choices, and the first choice you need to make is trusting His Son as your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it begins with the mind and heart. It's hearing the truth. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Romans 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised Him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. But as many as received Him, to them gave He power to become the sons of God. Salvation is of the Lord. It is by faith. It is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Not in the works of the flesh, but in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have not believed on Christ, I invite you this morning as we begin the invitation in a moment to come and trust Him as Savior or allow someone to take you to one of our counseling rooms and show you from the Scriptures how you can know for sure that when you die, you'll go to heaven. And while you're here, you can have life more abundantly. If you're a believer here this morning and God's spoken to your heart about matters relating to baptism, church membership, or other things to which God has drawn to your attention, the invitation will be open for you to address those things even here at the front. Bow your heads with me. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Holy Scriptures, and we thank you for the salvation that's ours in Jesus Christ. We thank you for what you've done for us and what you're doing. We thank you most of all the salvation that you've provided is eternal. It's not a fix or a quick fix for a, a permanent problem. It is a permanent fix for a problem that was ours through our birth under the fatherhood of Adam. And this morning, I pray you'll speak to every heart and work in every life. And pray, Father, that you'll deal with us according to your mercy. Pray for lost people in this room, people who have never believed on Christ as their personal Savior. I pray for them this morning that you'll work in their hearts and draw them to yourself. And I pray, Father, too, that you'll help them to realize that, Father, you love them enough to send your only begotten Son to die in their place. I pray for their salvation. I pray for believers here this morning the needs in their lives that, Father, you want them to address and face and to deal with, and you're using those things in their life. But there may be matters there to which they need to address. I pray that you will help them to do so even today. I do pray for those who I would come from baptism, church membership, for prayer. Just simply help us to be obedient to your word and to your spirit as he draws us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand with us, please? Turn to page 282 if you need a hymn book. If God has spoken to your heart this morning, then let me encourage you to come and allow someone to show you from the Scriptures how you can be saved if you're in need of salvation. If you are already a believer, if God has spoken, then allow Him to speak to your heart and direct your steps in a way that would honor Him. As we sing 282, you come, please, together. Just as I am. If God has spoken to your heart, would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come? God has spoken to your heart. Would you come?
thank you very much for your attention and your time. Thank you for being with us this morning. I hope you'll be back with us for the evening service tonight. As I've mentioned already, Savita Singh, young lady who is going to New York to be a missionary there and work for the folks in New York, are going to be um, coming into the service tonight. I want you, if you can, please, to be here with us. Be a welcome and a help to her. Get encouragement to her. So I hope you'll do that.